Hey everyone. Our story today starts with an uncomfortable situation. Producer Nadine Sheker was at a swimming pool in a resort on the Red Sea in Egypt when it happened. Afterwards, she recorded a voice note to herself, trying to make sense of it. Right now, I am in my hotel room in a six-star resort on the Red Sea. I'm packing, just ending my vacation. Uh, it's mostly been wonderful, really, except for just one little thing happened yesterday. I was um, just getting ready to get into the pool, and this guy comes rushing at me, tells me, no burkinis. And that was me and my mom, by the way. And we just, we got right out, uh, very embarrassed. That word burkini, you may know, is an English term for the kind of swimsuit failed women wear. As an aside, I've always hated the word. It's literally burka and bikini put together, which doesn't make sense if you think about it, nor does it even really represent what the swimsuit looks like. Anyway, back to Nadine. Um, and... It was very strange. It was actually the first time I... The day this happened, I had pretended to be okay all day. That it didn't matter that I was denied doing something because of how I dressed. That I was above it all, somehow. But as a few hours went by, I began sinking deeper into myself. For many years now, I have been veiled by choice. Although the way I wear my veil is more relaxed than others, I still consider myself a hijabi. And like any hijabi, there were very practical questions to be asked. Like how should I go to the beach as a hijabi? What should I wear at a wedding? Or when I go out with friends to a party? In 2017 especially, these little concerns I had became far more real. When I chose to put on a burkini and simply go for a swim. It was actually the first time I wore a burkini. I've always been embarrassed to wear one. Um, but finally, I found this designer burkini um, made in the UK. So, gave it a try. Even though I'm kind of sort of getting used to living like this in Egypt and sort of being segregated from certain areas, certain restaurants, certain nightclubs, um, I just did not expect it to affect me so directly. And I did not expect to encounter this in a hotel that I'm paying for, but the fact that they have this policy and implement this policy just um, goes with the larger thing that we are, as hijabis, are facing segregation, that we are in Egypt implementing segregation policies. And I honestly don't know what I'm going to do. This footnote, it's good to just have a record, um, but hopefully... It will come in handy one if day. the irony of this all has not yet come through, Nadine is Egyptian and Muslim, and Egypt is a majority Muslim country. The story is one close to my heart. I'm half Egyptian and Muslim. My mom is covered. She's had similar run-ins with hotel pools in Egypt. I have friends who often share their painful experiences of feeling less than. One story I'll never forget is a friend of mine, Yumna, was trying to make a dinner reservation in Cairo, and the host on the phone asked her to describe how she wears her veil. Because the way she dressed her headscarf would make or break whether or not she would be able to dine with them. So today, a story about feeling like an outcast in your own country. I'm Hibba Fisher, and this is Kerning Cultures. 
stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Here's Nadine. This story is not just about me. It is about many other women who have been made to feel the same way and are asking themselves why. It is about being a veiled woman in Egypt. Many women took to social media describing similar embarrassing encounters, being asked to leave restaurants, clubs, bars, being turned away from pools and hotels, and even getting rejected from jobs. One post was making the rounds that summer. It was Dina Aces, a hijabi who wanted to protest recently enforced measures banning hijabis from using more pools where she went on vacation. She had enough and decided to go for a swim in one of those banned pools. This is her explaining what happened. I started swimming. And then, of course, when I started swimming in this pool, everyone was very surprised. You can see the looks of everyone. Okay, I mean, this was something strange, you know, because everyone knew that it's not allowed. One of the, actually, the one of the people who are, were swimming in the pool, I mean, they pointed at me and they were talking. And I didn't exactly know what they were saying, but it was very obvious that they are saying that, you know, there is a person with a bikini swimming and she shouldn't be swimming. So anyways, the the lifeguard came and, you know, talked to me and I told him, uh, no, I'm not going to go outside. It's it's not some, anyone's right to kick me out of the pool. A bunch of people started gathering and arguing with one another, some defending her and some taking the side of the man. The people's voices started getting loud and people were starting about to, like, you know, actually fight. So then my relatives actually went and told me uh, that he was saying, you know, if, you, if you're going to be allowing this kind of thing, now you're going to be allowing uh, nannies or, you know. So it was very disrespectful how he was putting it. In case you didn't catch that, one of the men at the pool said, if you allow this kind of thing, next you'll be allowing nannies in the pool too. I was only able to understand the man's comment comparing hijabis to nannies through a conversation with my brother, who I spoke to while I was trying to figure this whole thing out. Here's some of that tape. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think it's a classist issue, yeah. As it's completely, it's completely based on, uh, on people not wanting people of lower classes to, to uh, go on vacation at the same spots they do. Because it looks icky. Because it looks icky. Yeah, it's, it's part of the class divide in Egypt because mm. people in upper classes think they're much better than everyone else and they think they're entitled to whatever they have. Uh, Egypt is a very classist place and this is just an example of, of classism. He said Egypt is a very classist place and this is just an example of that. That day, Dina posted about what had happened and included a photo and video of herself in her black and azure blue burkini holding her ground in the pool while people clustered around her. She commented on what the man had said, comparing hijabis to nannies. She then urged women not to be scared and to do the same. But what she wasn't prepared for were the kinds of reactions or comments she would get for what she had posted. For the most part, she got a lot of support. But reading through the comments myself, it was difficult to digest some of them. One woman said she shouldn't be wearing a burkini at all or even be in the same pool with men. There was no place for religion in the pool or beach and that women, when they come out of the pool, look like water-leaking barrels. Others said that wearing the hijab is only supporting Islamism and is backward 
while some brought up the fact that they thought her swimsuit material was unhygienic, which for Dina could easily be disputed. You can swim with the sea with any kind of clothes. It would not do any kind of hygiene issues. So, so this purely shows that part of the reason, at least, is, uh, is, uh, is how elegant or you know, how uh, classy the, the place looks. As in burkinis aren't classy. Other people were actually talking about the rules, that you're not following the rules, but I felt like if, 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 if there are some rules that are related to discrimination, then these are not rules. The rule is meant to be protecting people. So a rule, if, if, if a rule is built on discrimination, then it should not be followed. It's not like, you know, a holy, it's not like holy words. These were the kinds of comments hijabis were hearing over and over again. Where did these ideas come from? And how did hijabis get swept into this strangely new social narrative that was so bent on focusing on appearances and class differences? The first thing I needed to figure out was when all this started happening. Okay, so this should be attached to my phone. I spoke to Mai Kozba, who studies Muslims and Islamophobia in the West and in Muslim-majority countries. She told me about an important rupture in Egyptian political life. Hundreds of thousands stormed the streets across the Republic. You know, they were opposing the rule of Mohammed Morsi. After the fall of the Muslim Brotherhood's short rule in Egypt in 2013, things changed. Now, here's an interesting turning point where the speeches that were given up by the president at a time kind of like set the tone for the for what's to come. Uh, who is the enemy? Who's our friend and who's not? There's some sort of like an anti-Ikhwan campaign that, ha- of course, it has deep-rooted hate against them. And so... Al-Ikhwan is the Arabic name for the Muslim Brotherhood. And fighting terrorism, says May, was read by many as a veiled reference to fighting them. Somehow, hijabis were a casualty of this war. In 2015, a famous journalist, Sharifa Shubeshi, put out a call for all Egyptian women to publicly unveil and to do so at a rally in Tahrir Square. He noted that the hijab defied freedom and should be countered by the state, just like terrorism. It was not just him making statements like these, but also many other public figures and media people. I think I want to ask you, are negative perceptions uh, of hijabis right now in response to the Muslim Brotherhood, or is it like inaccurate to say that? Because I feel like these changes have happened in the past few years and and it's all been like in response to what happened at that time. More than one factor. Um, definitely um, the war on the Khuen exacerbated those sentiments of anti-hijab. It opened a space for people to be more vocal about how they feel about conspicuous signs of religiosity, anti-Islam and anti-hijab sentiments were always there. The only difference is that those sentiments took a darker turn. So yes, anti-hijab has history, but what the reason we're looking at this full-fledged like anti-hijab visible discrimination is because we have a war on terror and the society was encouraged from the beginning to find a role to play in, in this war. As Egypt lost its way in the search for a new national identity, so did hijabis, because it affected many aspects of our daily life. You see, everyone from real estate companies to the hospitality industry and many job sectors wanted to ride this wave and either implicitly or explicitly enforced measures against hijabis. Right now, reading all the articles online and different accounts of women who have a hard time being hijabis in Egypt, 
uh, most of them talk about like how they're looked down upon as inferior uh, and uh, it's only accommodating like to rich women who are not veiled. People like to think of it or, or like the narrative that, that, that they use is perhaps classist, but this is for me is a segregationist textbook racist. If you're creating spaces where you're not allowing hijabi women to enter uh, your restaurant or enter or even wear the burkini and go to the beach, to the sea, because uh, they're going to pollute the sea, for me is, is, is laughable and also very sad because it is very segregationist. But in most cases, such segregationist measures were not overt or stated explicitly. Many companies, except for a handful, would never say they don't hire hijabis or sell to them, for example. Nor would they have clear policies on that. But they would go about it in different ways. For example, there was never an official ban on wearing burkinis. But many hotel owners chose to designate family pools for hijabis. Big real estate companies also have their roundabout ways. Hi, Naveen. Hi, and how are you? Hinm and I used to work in advertising for real estate companies that sell beach homes just like Dina's. She tells me that there are no explicit policies that forbid hijabis from buying from them or becoming their clients. However, real estate giants look for a specific type of clientele and ask marketing firms to target an A-class list of clients checking where they live, what they buy, what phones they use, sometimes even looking for people who only speak English or other foreign languages, or who are interested in nightlife or are frequent travelers, or who wear Gucci and top brands as examples. Implicitly, they know that most hijabis in Egypt won't fit that bracket. They are then selective with who they choose to be their clients, screening buyers on a case-by-case basis. Hind adds an important caveat. Companies will not prevent hijabis from becoming their clients if they are rich. I asked him why appearances were so important to these companies. Because this is the trend right now. What you're wearing and what you're doing. In the North Coast, for example, it's all about the kind of event or party you can hold on the beach. Who is it sponsored by? Who is invited? Who are the actors or influencers who will attend? And how do they look like so they can promote it? It's all about who will do it better. They spend an immense amount of money on this just for appearances. So they're able to say, we're not only selling, we're also looking after our clients. We entertain them. We're keen that not just anyone attends our parties or events. And hijabis are not allowed into three quarters of these events. So if hijabis fall in this awkward space, why don't these companies just enforce a total ban? They tried in 2016 to make laws to try and prevent hijabis from doing a lot of things, but they did not succeed because they realized they would have the most to lose. And the reason they couldn't, Hint says, is because in every family there is at least one family member who is failed. But in all honesty, I experience this all the time in my life. I can see it in the way that they treat me. What else would it mean to own a beach home but not be able to access a beach event? They don't know how to get away from this. They don't know how to be balanced. They say we're okay with it, but they're not really. But this goes back to our behavior. We did this. We Egyptians did this to ourselves. Unfortunately, this has extended to certain jobs as well, which at first seemed unimaginable to me, until I met Sandra Said through a friend. 
I feel like an outcast and has, this has been going for years. She requested her name to be changed for professional reasons. It's how you looked at and it's all the time. Uh, despite the fact that, um, thank God, I'm accomplished. I, uh, I did my best in my professional career, in my personal life. And still people wouldn't recognize all of this. For me, this is very humiliating because they do not give them themselves a chance to, to get to know you better as a person, but rather they would like us all to look alike and fit in, which is not part of what I believe in. As an HR manager, I think uh, the most common would be line managers asking me to get someone um, with certain criteria, like they wouldn't say it very bluntly, but you would understand that they don't want uh, someone who's veiled. Mm. And we get into this discussion that this is not uh, appropriate and this is discriminative and you need to give everyone a chance, uh, which you're basically not doing. And they would end up doing the interviews for everyone and still choose someone who's not uh, who's not veiled. So you would still bring forth a candidate who's veiled despite them saying no? Yes, I would bring forward whatever I see as matching with the requirements of the position. Uh, how would they react when you did that? After some time, I realized that they respect what I'm doing, but still their minds are up to something. So uh, they would interview the people. They would just do what other managers did with me as an applicant, just like rush into the interview, finish it in like 15 or 20 minutes. Like they did their job and then they would choose whatever they have. And we had these personal discussions that like your mother is wearing hijab, your wife is wearing hijab. Why are you being discriminative against uh, those who are wearing hijab on the job? And they would be like, oh, but this is different. This is a professional environment. Uh, they need to uh, attract the clients. In my conversations with Sandra... It hit me how this problem with hijab was a uniquely Egyptian one, a product of recent events, a need to reinvent one's identity along certain lines like appearance, class, money, secularism. But what about history? Was there something in our history that affects our perceptions of hijab today? Did hijab always mean the same thing? It is true about what they say about our grandmothers and great-grandmothers living through much more liberal times the 1940s all through the 60s, but even dating back to the mid-19th century, Egypt was going through its liberal age. This period witnessed the liveliest cultural wave the Arab world had ever seen. The popularization of Arab novels, theater, cinema, an impressive translation movement, the beginnings of liberal democracy, and burgeoning secularism that suddenly challenged the authority of religion in Egyptian society. Even then, there was a struggle over what defined Egyptian identity. The Arabs looked to the East, the Levant, Iraq, the Arabian Peninsula, and others looked to the Mediterranean and Europe. Some wanted Egypt to be Islamic. Well, uh, as you know, the um, Egyptian society was very class-based. This is Fatwa Ginti, an anthropologist who studied hijab throughout Egypt's modern history, especially in the 1970s when she conducted field research on why Egyptian women were veiling in masses and wrote several seminal books about it. And the uh, upper-class Egyptian women were, up to 1923, distinguished from the middle and, and lower classes by 
wearing head covers and face covers. She takes me all the way back to the 20th century with a woman named Hoda Sharawi, whom you've probably heard about before. Uh, Hoda Sharawi was a cosmopolitan woman. She went to international feminist movements to represent Egypt. She comes from the upper class. Uh, and she was doing what her class was doing, which is head cover and face cover, this uh, kind of niqab that is, you know, chic. And um, when she returned from uh, one of these movements, she decided this is the end of the niqab, that she is going to remove the niqab. And I think with that, uh, Hoda Sha'arawi gained respect inside Egyptian society. The symbolism of it went beyond that, and the women saw it as a liberation point, and that's the end of the hijab, etc., etc. But it wasn't really the end of the hijab. It was the idea behind that she can lift the niqab. The, the idea that she did lift the niqab publicly, and many people followed. Feminists such as Huda Sharawi rejected the system that kept women secluded in their homes, which was known as the harem system, and publicly removed her face veil in 1923 in protest. Huda Sharawi's public unveiling meant something big at the time and generated debate around the head and face covering among Egyptians. Well, I think that intellectual and public intellectual leaders in society were debating uh, from the perspective of the influences they had, many of these were very much influenced by French culture. They were educated in France. They wanted their women to look uh, cosmopolitan and international. And some said, no, they should be conservative and traditional. It was an intellectual debate going on about whether to cover uh, the head and face or not to cover the head and face. Fast forward a few decades to this moment in history. It is Nasser, socialist president, giving a speech in 1958. This is how it goes. He's saying to a large audience of people that he met the head of the Muslim Brotherhood and made demands to him one of which is to make the hijab mandatory in Egypt, and that every woman on the street have a scarf on. <laughs> the audience bursts out laughing. Someone at the back shouts, let him wear it. Hijab was a big part of the Muslim Brotherhood's social campaign. Although the Brotherhood was a young organization at the time, the way they were using and talking about hijab was very politicized, and they carried that agenda with them into the 1970s. By the 70s, the hijab had taken on a totally different meaning. Here's Fatwa again. The movement that started in the 70s, I would say was really different 
from all of that debate. From the intellectual debates of earlier in the century, she means. Because it is the young women who are educated, who went to the university, and it is these women and the women who were in the most difficult majors, medicine, engineering, and so on, who were into this kind of movement of what's wrong with us? Why can't we dress um, in our way? Now, when they did that, at that time, the mothers were in shock because the mothers have lived through the debates that you're talking about, the debates of lifting the veil, and they feel that they worked hard to achieve the uh, uncovering, and then their daughters voluntarily, without any pressure from uh, Al-Azhar or their parents, uh, started moving into covering. But the cover was very different. That is, if you go in the uh, sartorial uh, features of the veil of the 70s and what was there before, they were really very different. The veiling of the upper class of Hoda Sharawi and so on, is transparent, white muslin, and so on. It was a very different kind of dress from the one that got established by the women in the 70s, the young women. Those were long abaya-like robes that women started making for each other before they were commercialized and started selling in stores. By the 80s, their mothers joined. By the 90s, it was crossing classes, and now I see a retreat from that. What happened in Egypt with the revolution between 211 and 213 is that some liberation happened in Egypt. It, um, the message was you don't need these symbols, nobody's going to stop you but you don't need it for your identity. It is no more a distinguishing feature of being the proper Egyptian woman. I know uh, many young women who just removed it. They must have felt that the reason behind their donning this cover before doesn't exist anymore. Is hijab is transforming into something else that has yet to be defined. Many women, if not all hijabi women I talk to, see their hijab as a form of resistance, with varying degrees, of course. It is that kind of resistance that pushed the Egyptian Hotel Association, an elected body and NGO supervising all hotels in Egypt, to release an official memo on the 19th of August in 2019, preventing hotels from banning burkinis in certain areas in Egypt, after receiving hundreds of complaints. When this binding memo came out, it created a huge buzz. We <clears throat> spoke to the man behind this decision, Megid Melek, the body's chairman. Part of, the, uh, of our uh, society saw me as uh, people's enemy. <laughs> and part of it perceived me, they sent me thank you letters. I received many, actually. And uh, some of the hotels who do not allow burkinis at all, they got the shock of their life from this letter, especially coming from me, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? Yes. What? Because <laughs> uh, you're a cop. Yeah. 
but he chose to take this step because he saw many women were discriminated against and that hotels must respect changing Egyptian traditions. He said many hotel owners and even some family members opposed him. But for him... Accepting the other, the way it is, the way he is, the way she is, is a solution to many problems that we have. Because I, it, I cannot put conditions to the way you dress, the way you eat, the way you live your own life, the way you choose to live your own life. Removing barriers by accepting the other the way he or she is, I think it's one of the, the main solutions to our society. So yeah, the, 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 like this is the question now, what is the future of Islam in the Egyptian public sphere? Um, and this is something that in a lot of thinkers are discussing right now. This is my Kozba from earlier. I was I was struck to see by by seeing like uh, different movements on Facebook by hijabi women trying to belong. I mean, it was impressive from a, from an organizing perspective. Like uh, this is a counter narrative to the anti hijab narrative. I was very proud to see that, but it was also alarming. There's a woman who said, it's easier for me. She's Egyptian. She lives in London. I, it was on a BBC article. She was like, it's easier for me to be a hijabi in London than in Egypt. <laughs> really. Maybe belonging is something I will not find for a long time in Egypt. I cannot make peace completely with the changing social attitudes taking place here that are bigger than me. Here's Sandra. How I made peace with wearing hijab after all these years is basically the fact that Ever since the beginning, I tried to have have my journey as an intellectual one, uh, where anyone who would sit with me in a discussion, I would be able to debate, a healthy debate. And uh, we would come out of the discussion with respect and the fact that they know why I'm doing this. And some of them are even convinced. And some of them, even if they're not convinced, they would still admire me for what I'm doing. Because I believe it's a courageous act in such a society. I actually think it's how you hold yourself together against whatever people say. For me, I still find it difficult to talk about my hijab, how people look at me, or even why I continue to wear it. In the case of Egypt, a series of political events, a complex search for identity, and changing social norms gave the hijab a completely new meaning very different from the one I knew. That affected how Egyptians thought of each other, their understanding of why people are motivated to do certain things or to be who they are. Here is me from three years ago, going on about how I absolutely hated Um, to be in the same pool with kids. Very strange, but they have segregated pools here. They have a family pool for um, people like me, I guess, even though I don't have a family. Um, And that's where you and your burkini, along with whatever kids or your family, go into that pool. But the infinity pool is like, I guess, for foreigners or people who don't wear burkinis. So anyway, um, we got right out. This episode was produced by Nadine Shaker with editorial support from Dana Balut, Tamara Rasamni, Zaina Duedar, Alex Atak, and myself, Hiba Fisher. Sound design by Alex Atak and Mohamed Khezat and fact-checking by Zaina Duedar. Bella Ibrahim is our marketing director. Thank you to everyone who spoke to us for this episode. Hind Monam, Dina Isa, Meng Kuspa, Fadwel Gwindi, Sandra Sayed, Magid Madik, Yusuf Shakir, and Yumnir Sherbini. Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a new story.